Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Morning, church. How we doing? Hey, uh, first things first, happy 4th of July, everybody. We're so glad that you uh, came here to celebrate, to kick it off with us this morning. Um, and a big shout out to all those people who were uh, flipping pancakes and filling stuff up. Yeah, give them a round of applause. Um, if you loved the pancakes, it was because of me. If you hated them, Pastor Jeff, he, that was his... Thing. No, just kidding. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we're, uh, we're excited that you are, uh, you're here with us. Um, we know it's warm in here, um, and so uh, we have an entire AC unit that's currently down that's sitting above you that would love to pump cold air as much as you would love to feel it. Um, and so if we can get the senior pastor to not talk super long today, we'll all get out of here at a good time, and uh, it'll not... So we know it's warm, we'll, we'll do our best to address it this week, um, but uh, yeah, between those carbs that Jeff was talking about and a warm room, it feels a little bit like a sleeping bag in here, so I may have to yell at you guys to keep you awake this morning. Um, but uh, we're continuing in our series in the book of Exodus, um, and so uh, you, can, uh, you can flip over to the, uh, the book of Exodus, we're actually in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 14 today, um, so you can flip there. Uh, I really did in the last couple of weeks when I wasn't preaching, uh, I, gave, I gave some of the passages that, man, people don't tend to use as memory verses uh, to Jeff and then Pastor Ed was the week before that. And I came back just in time to preach on the golden calf, which is another one of the big stories uh, in the book of Exodus. Um, and so uh, we're going to be talking about that today. Um, but, uh, but if you're like, it, if, if you haven't been here in a while, or, or maybe you don't know who I am, I grew up in a, uh, in a small town in the Central Valley. I actually grew up in, uh, in Atwater, California. It's about an hour and a half or so from here, depending on how, uh, how risky you want to be about getting a speeding ticket or not. Um, and Fourth of July for us was always a huge deal. Uh, it's my dad's birthday. It's the Fourth of July. Um, they would always have, like, you know, typical small town fashion. We would have a, a parade that went through town. Actually, the whole reason that my family uh, moved to Atwater was because my grandfather was in the Air Force for his entire life. Um, and they, they moved to Castle Air Force Base, which is now no longer uh, in commission, but they moved to, uh, to Castle Air Force Base. And that's just kind of where they landed. And so uh, on a regular 4th of July, we would do the 4th of July parade thing, right? Uh, me and all of our cousins, uh, we would always get this meat that was on a stick. To this day, I don't know what the meat was was that was on that stick, but it's the best darn meat you'll ever eat in your entire life. Um, they, uh, they always had games between uh, the county firemen and the city firemen, um, which was pretty awesome. Um, and then uh, one of the other things that we would always do at Castle Air Force Base, they have uh, an airplane museum. Um, and so we would go out and walk through the airplanes and that sort of thing. And my grandpa would tell us all about it. Oh, I worked on this, you know, all those different things. Um, and so Atwater very much, it feels uh, a lot like, like Hanford, a smaller town, a community that's big enough so you don't know everybody, but small enough so if you do something wrong, someone's going to tell your parents about it. Um, and, uh, and so when we were growing up, oftentimes, man, we were just kind of, there was some boredom that tend to happen 
right? I mean, you're growing up, like, what do you want to do? Especially once you get to high school, like, what do you want to do? Like, I don't know. So we did dumb things like attach a boogie board to the back of a, a pickup truck and drive through orchards in it because, hey, why not, right? Um, and then oftentimes, like, boredom would just kind of turn into, like, destruction a little bit. And so there were numerous times that me and my friends were like, well, we're bored. It's one in the morning. What should we do? Well, what do you do at one in the morning? You go buy a ton of toilet paper from Save Mart and go give it to one of your friends, right? Um, and so we did, like, we did that. And, and boredom kind of led to, to bad decisions on a regular basis, right? Um, when, when we were tired of the status quo, when we wanted some sort of excitement in our life, oftentimes what that meant was is we were going to do something stupid, because we were looking to change the status quo. We were looking to do something fun. And so when we were immature, we didn't know that, hey, if you're bored and it's one in the morning, chances are you should probably just go to sleep, right? Like, like a, a rational thinking person would say, hey, it's time for bed if you're bored at one in the morning, okay? But we weren't mature at that point. We didn't know, we, hey, we're all together. We should go do something and go deliver toilet paper, Right? And if you're here this morning and you're in high school, this is not a ringing endorsement to TP someone's home, okay? Just to, be, just to be clear, especially on the heels of a pandemic where at one point that stuff was worth its weight in gold. So please don't, don't go uh, do that, okay? But bad decisions tend to be made when immature people are not happy with the status quo in an effort to change their situation. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But think about your life. Okay, think about your life for a second. When you aren't happy with the status quo, as someone who is a, a mature person, you probably think about it rationally, right? You probably think about it thoughtfully. Say, hey, we should do X, Y, and Z to, to alleviate the pressure that's being put on you or to alleviate the boredom or to alleviate the whatever. Maybe it's, maybe it's at work, right? And maybe you have something wrong at work. A mature person would do their best to fix that situation, whether that's going in and talking to your direct report or going to a coworker that you're having a difficult time with directly and, and having that conversation, that very biblical conversation says, hey, go talk to that person one-on-one -on -one first and try to, try to settle that in some way. And maybe you've done that before. I would hope that, that you had done that before. But an immature person would maybe encounter the same issue at work or maybe it's at home. But then they would, they would probably gossip about it behind somebody else's backs for entirely too long before eventually rage quitting for, for whatever reason without ever bringing the matter to the attention of somebody who could fix it. That's what an immature person would do. An immature person would do their best to kind of gossip about it, but really never solve the problem. But we're going to talk about it a lot as long as we don't have to go confront the person or talk to the person about it. Okay, this is true in our Christian lives as well. There are times of tension. There are times of boredom. There are times of anxiety where we are not happy with the status quo. We're not okay with it. And sometimes these situations force us to run toward God. Right? Actually, oftentimes in times of despair, times where maybe we lose a loved one or times where maybe we get some sort of disease or we got laid off work or someone that we know is having a difficult time, oftentimes like the change in status quo can either force us to run towards God and, and follow God, but there are other times that maybe we've decided to follow God at some point, but then because of whatever reason, we seek a change in that status quo and run away from God. And we run away from the church. We get bored. We seek out something new. 
We get unhappy and we trade in the problems that we know for the problems that we don't know yet. Right? We get anxious. We seek a a quick fix rather than being patient and walking through it with God. And all of us are guilty of this in some way, shape, or form. All of us are at some point in our lives. And that's where we find Israel in this passage. They are fed up with the status quo. They are tired of this. Man, we have a group of immature believers in the Israelites who are unhappy with their status quo of wandering in the desert. Their leader, man, he took off up a mountain for weeks, right? Remember all those passages that we talked through, all those rules, all those laws? Like, man, that was just Moses and God hanging out. And we don't know what the Israelites are up to at that point. But all we know is that Moses and God are hanging out up on a mountain. And there's this entire, entire people group down on the mountain just being like, I don't know, he might be dead. I don't know what's happening, but I'm really sick of being in this desert and not having any, any, any food that tastes real good right now. Like that is, the, that is the status quo at the point. Man, Moses was up on that mountain for 40 days and the Israelites weren't allowed to go. Like they assumed that he was dead. They're like, our leader is gone. So, hey, we should probably, man, we should probably do something now that we are bored and we're seeking a, sh- a change in status quo, which brings us to Exodus 32 verses 1 to 14. Do me a favor. I've been doing this when I've been preaching. We're going to stand together as we read. It's going to be verses 1 through 14. So go ahead and stand. The verses are going to be up on the screen. You do not need to read them with us, but we stand um, just as uh, uh, reverence to God and his word. So this is what it says. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took them, or he took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and I made them myself an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen this people, these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should you anger, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for, man, we thank you for, for Moses, 
and his heart and his desire to man, to, to, to bring these, this people of immaturity into maturity, to bring them and, 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 and do his best to protect them from your judgment. And so God, I pray today that as we pull this text apart a little bit, that we would be able to glean what it is that you would have for us, that we would recognize that oftentimes we find ourselves in the same place as the Israelites. So God, we love you, we praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. All right, so let's, uh, let's work back through this. I had you guys stand because I saw some of you guys nodding off. It's like, no, no. Uh, so let's work back through this. Verses 1 through 6, okay, verses 1 through 6 are all about the Israelites wanting a change in status. Okay, like I said, their status quo right now, like they are bored with it. Exodus 24, 18, it tells us that, that Moses spent 40 days up on a mountain with God. Okay, so the people, like I said, they're, they're beginning to think at this point that Moses had died or Moses had left them. And so they look to, to the second in command. They look to, to Aaron, who's, who's number two, their temporary leader, to make gods for them to follow. Okay, and we see this and we're like, man, this is weird. Like, this doesn't make any sense, right? They just had God, the one true God, deliver them out of slavery. Like, and it doesn't make any sense that all of a sudden they're going to be like, hey, not only do we have a God that's, that's delivered us out of slavery, but we're kind of bored with the status quo right now. And so because of that, hey, give me all your gold and let's make our own God. Like, in our heads, that doesn't make any sense. In our heads, that's stupid, right? Because you're like, you just literally made something out of jewelry and decided to worship it. Okay, but we have to remember the context that Israel finds, it, finds itself at this point. Okay, remember the Israelites, they were accustomed to having visual representations of gods, of all of these different gods. They had lived for so long in Egypt that this idea of monotheism, having one God and having a God to worship that didn't have like a physical representation of himself was not normal. This was actually strange to the Israelite people. So they went back to comfort in the midst of trying to change the status quo. Anybody ever... Uh, ever go on a diet, but then they have a really, really difficult day, and they're like, you know what, I'm going to eat my feelings, right? Yeah, like I'm done. I'm going to eat my feelings. We go back to comfort all the time, right? When we have a hard day or something's difficult or we're not happy, we're like, you know what, I'm going to seek something else that's going to change my status quo in the, like in the shape of the chocolate chip cookies that my wife made the other night, right? Like that's, that's what we tend, and that's what they are doing. They went back to comfort in the midst of trying to change the status quo. They began running away from God in a very real way. So Aaron, he takes up all of their earrings and, and he melted them down to make a golden calf. Okay, but the strange thing is, is that, that it wasn't actually a new God. And I don't know if you caught that. It's not a new God that they are worshiping. Actually, Aaron was merging their pagan practices of Egypt and idol worship and, and, and they were, that they were familiar with and the worship of God that they were just beginning to understand, this idea of monotheism, okay? They were just be, be, or not being able to understand, getting reacquainted with, rather, because he told them in, in verse 5 that this was their God, okay? This was the God. The calf they had just carved out of their stuff was the God that had delivered them out of Egypt, not a new God, this is the God that has delivered you out of Egypt. 
That's what, that's what is currently happening. And after that, they started back into the old pagan rituals that they were used to in Egypt. And here's, here's what's interesting, though. The Israelites, as often as we've heard this story, and this stuck out like a sore thumb to me as I was going back through it, because I've read the story, and I know the story, and they, man, they created a new God, and it was a calf for them to turn their backs on and, and worship this other God. Right? They, they simply, they, like, they never turned their back on God. They actually, they simply made God a part of their belief system that they already had in place. They didn't make a new God. They made God the God, part of the belief system that they already had in place. And, and hear me on this. And if you're a note taker, write this one down. I think this is the biggest danger to Christians in the West today. This right here. This is the biggest danger. Not that we don't recognize that there is a God, but that God can in some way, shape, or form fit into our already laid out belief system. That's the danger You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't say, God bless America today, right? So the, the, the hardship isn't making people believe that there is a God. For the most part, especially in our community, the majority of people believe that there is a God, and he is the monotheistic God of the Old and New Testament. That is true. The difficult thing and the dangerous thing is that God, that we would believe that God, like I said, in some way, shape, or form can fit into our already laid out belief system. Because most people are great with the idea of God, as long as they don't have to do the work of ripping out their old belief system in order to go to heaven. That's the reality of it. As long as I can, I can still vote the way I want to vote, then of course I believe in God. Right? As long as I can still do like the, do still care about the same social issues that I care about, that I do now, then yeah, of course I, I believe in God. As long as I can still do whatever it is that I want to do and not change anything about my current living situation, then of course I'm good with God. That's the danger. And that's where the Israelites are right now. That's not what we are called to do. That's pagan. That's phony. That's gold encrusted, made from your own hands, God, that provides no power and no life change. That's the reality. It offers our own comfort. It offers our own kind of happy little status quo. It doesn't offer us the, the God of the Old Testament. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't offer us the God of the New Testament. It certainly isn't Jesus. It certainly isn't the Holy Spirit. And it certainly isn't the gospel, which is a gospel of life change. It is none of those things. It's hoping for a free pass without any skin in the game is really what it is. And sadly, there will be billions of people who leave this earth thinking they're on their way to heaven and they aren't. Simply because we have shoved God into a box that we're comfortable with rather than allowing God to create the box for us. It's a small difference, but it's a massive one. But that's an entire sermon series, and we have potato salad to get to. So let's, we're going to keep, keep moving. So in the chunk of the next verses, okay, the next verses, God sees the Israelites deluding who he is, kind of watering down what it means to, to actually have skin in the game with a God, who he is. And so God, rightfully so, he gets angry. In verse 7 and following, God calls the Israelites corrupt, a stick-neft people, and all the way down in verse 10, God tells Moses to leave him alone so he can kill all of them. Good, man, that's fun. That's fun to read stuff like that, 
right? I mean, like this is angry God mode. And this right here is why so many people have a poor understanding of the Old Testament. Because you see God who just, why is God mad? Like, I mean, all they did was like make, make a statue and start worshiping it. Like, what? Like, come on, is that, really, is that really something that God should be so upset about that he's going to wipe an entire people group off the face of the earth? That's why we have a poor understanding of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Because oftentimes we look at the two and we're like, that's not the same God. Good news is, it is. Yeah, God is unchanging. He does not change regardless of time period, regardless of era, regardless of culture. God does not change. He is, he is an unchanging and perfect God. Nothing as different is different. He always loves people and he always hates sin. That never changes. And that's where we find ourselves because we see passages like this and we make it look like God was angry all the time. It can be confusing to us. So let's look at then why he is angry. Long story short, Okay, God is angry because Israel sinned. God is angry because Israel sinned. But man, was the sin bad enough to warrant him killing all of the Israelites, all of the people? He spent so much time delivering from Egypt. I mean, the first 31 chapters of the book of Exodus, that's all God is doing. All the way back into the book of Genesis, he's waiting to deliver his people, right? And God has spent all of this time, and then all of a sudden God gets mad because they made a statue? And he's going to just like forget it. It's not worth it. They're not worth it. So let's interpret this, this, this passage through the lens of the gospel because that's really is how we should look at everything, right? Jesus-centric is where we want to be. In other words, let's make sure that God's character is consistent across all of Scripture. So let's go to Romans 6.23. A lot of you probably know it. Okay, Romans 6.23. It's one of the most popular passages in the Bible when it comes to describing the state of the sinner and what it is that a sinner deserves. We have no problem quoting it. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, if there is sin, hear this, if there is sin, the payment for that sin is what? Death. So let me say it again. If there is sin, the payment for that sin is death. According to God, according to his character, according to his word, the penalty for sin is death. And if we pause right there, it's much more difficult for us to grapple with. If you got rid of the second half of that verse, right, for the wages of sin is death. If we stop there, that's a hard verse for us to be able to, to, to wrestle with. That's a very much an Old Testament verse. So we're thinking about God's character, and we're thinking about, man, God is so angry in the Old Testament. And God just, man, everybody dies in the Old Testament. The New Testament literally is the same message as the Old Testament, just with the hope of Jesus attached to it, because Jesus has come and conquered death at that point. So God does not change. God is exactly the same forever. Because the end of that verse is, is what it really, the end of that verse seems to push us through about the good news of this verse. And we think to ourselves, yeah, of course, like of course the wages of sin is death, but the, God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Like we, we ended on an upswing. We don't stay down of like the wages of sin is death, like and Jesus, right? Like that, like that is the verse. 
But Romans 6.23, it's a compound sentence. There's two thoughts to that. The wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It doesn't matter if the sin is big. It doesn't matter if it's small, it's secret, perverse, tame, or public. Like, it does not matter what the sin is. If you have sinned, the penalty for it, according to the person who created the entire universe, is death. That's it. So we're reading through the Old Testament, and you see these verses where these people sin against God, and God's like, I'm going to wipe them out. You know why? Because his character doesn't change, and God hates sin. And the wages for that sin is what? Death. So when the Israelites sinned against God by putting pagan idols in the place of Yahweh, man, their penalty was death. This is consistent with his character, then, now, and forever. It doesn't make it easy. It's a hard passage, especially when you start looking at it like that because we come to church and we want to feel good when we leave. But when we think about the fact that the wage of sin is death, that's hard. The good news is we don't have to sit in that long as the second part of that compound, compound sentence has been manifest in a lot of our lives. As long as we have embraced the reality that the free gift of eternal life was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the second half of that compound sentence, and we're going to get back to that in just a few minutes. But the last piece of this scripture, we have to understand what is not happening. Okay, the last couple verses in this, we have to understand what's not happening. So let me explain. The Israelites have sinned. God threatens to wipe them off the face of the earth, and then God seemingly changes his mind. Hold on, Peter, you just said that God does not change. How could he change his mind about that? It even said in verse 15 that he relented thanks to Moses. So wait, did, is Moses such a powerful character in the Bible that he could change the mind of God? So for the sake of clarity, God did not change his mind in this. We have to be clear on the fact that in the Bible, it is clear that God's promises and God's warnings are always conditional on man's response. Okay, they're always conditional on man's response. This is most clearly laid out for us in Ezekiel 30, 33. It's verses 13 to 16. It should be on the screen. It says this. It says, if I tell a righteous person that they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and do evil, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they have done. And if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, but then they turn away from their sin and do what is just and right, if they give back what they took and pledge for a loan, return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life, and do no evil, that person will surely live. They will not die. Verse 15, or 16, excuse me. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right, and they will surely live. Okay, so God is saying here, hey, look, I may say one thing that you will surely die, and you will surely die if you do not change the way you are living. For the wages of sin is death. You will be destroyed. But the good news is that we have Jesus, and so you get to turn from that. Right, that's what he's saying here. And we have a part to play in this. The Israelites have a part to play in this. Their actions, and in this case, Moses' actions, are going to be the impetus for whether or not Yahweh, the one true God, was going to destroy every single Israelite, which they deserved. So we shouldn't think of Moses as altering God's purpose towards Israel in this conversation, because he didn't. God didn't change his mind, but it's kind of carrying it out for him. 
Moses is, is hearkening back to the promises God made to his people in the first place. Right, when we started this series, we had to look back into the book of Genesis, back into Genesis 50 and beyond, where we talked about God's promises to his people that it hadn't yet been fulfilled in the book of Genesis. And so Moses remembered what happened. Moses remembered those promises, and he reminded God of those promises as well. And so he reminds God as to everything he has delivered them from. God relents and does not drop the hammer. That's what's happening here. And God, at this point, he gives grace to his people where death is deserved. Let me say that again. God gives grace to his people where death is deserved. God gives grace to his people where death is deserved. Think about your life for a minute. Think about your life. Think about the sin that at some point in your life you've wrestled with. Maybe you're still wrestling with it. Idolatry, anger, fear, pornography, pride, greed. You fill in the blank. The wages of sin is death. And if you believe what the Bible says, and I know the majority of you in here do believe what the Bible says, then you, by nature of your sin and the reality of the word of God, deserve death. If it's your first time, welcome to church. <laughs> but if you believe that, we deserve death. The good news is, is we have a God who gives grace to his people where death is deserved. He gives grace to the Israelites where death is deserved. Grace is one of the distinctive features of Christianity. Without grace, there is no Christian religion. There isn't. No other system of religious thought, past or present, contains an emphasis, an emphasis on divine grace comparable to that of the Bible. Because there's no other gods, like including the ones formed by the hands of the Israelites, that's willing to forgive as often and as freely as Yahweh. Ezekiel 33 said it, like, hey, your sins aren't going to be remembered if you turn from them and repent. There is no other God who so freely gives grace to his people, okay? And, and the church needs to remember this reality. In a world that, that loves to proclaim that truth is relative, okay, we've gotten really good at pushing against relative truth into substantive truth. We're really good at that, church. And our Facebook posts prove it. We'll I'll tell you the truth, which is good and it's necessary. We should never skimp on truth. So please don't write me an email telling you, tell, like me saying that I did. Don't skimp on truth. But as equally, like we need to tell the truth, as equally as we do that, we need to be telling them equally about grace. We need to be extending grace. Knowing that the Bible talks about grace more often than any other religion in the history of the world should help us how it is that we need to live our lives. That should define who we are. That is what it is that we should be known for and how it is we interact with believers and non-believers alike. Grace upon grace upon grace. Imagine if the church was, was known for offering grace while proclaiming truth. Like if the church recognized that, that we can't hold people to a standard they don't yet believe in. We can't do that. C.S. Lewis, man, the majority of C.S. Lewis's works is that's what it talks about. 
Just like, hey, look, if they're not a believer, you can't expect them to act like a believer because they don't believe it. So is bashing them with truth going to help? No, but grace might. Loving those people might. Can we offer them grace upon grace as the Holy Spirit loves them into a saving relationship with Jesus? That's the responsibility of the church. If the church was marked by our love for others rather than marked for having to be right about every little thing, if we would simply be obedient to remembering the entire story of God and his character, that we serve a God who offers grace when death is deserved, then days like today, man, where we get to proclaim our nation being founded on Christian morality would tell, man, would tell a different story. It would tell about how America, because of its freedoms, have given the church the opportunity to love unashamedly, to tell the entire truth. And when we fall short, our incredible God covers us with grace as we try our best to do better next time. Like, that's the gospel. That's the reality of America. Like That's the freedom that we should be proclaiming and exploding later on tonight and eating too much today, that we have the freedom to serve a massive God who offers grace like in exchange for death. That's the gospel. And I know most of us, man, we want to see our country, the United States of America, be a city on a hill for the entire world. Know, though, that we aren't going to get there through shouting matches. We aren't going to get there for vo by voting for a different president or new Congress. The only way our nation becomes a light in the darkness is for individuals of the church to recognize the grace given by God as we do our best to be obedient to him. America, you want to be a nation on a hill? Start with yourself and offer grace upon grace upon grace as you offer truth. Tell the story of the gospel. It starts with us as individuals and our decision to follow God. So the question I want to leave you with on this wonderful 4th of July is this. Are you stuck at the first half of Romans 6.23? Are you waiting on death because of your sin? Is that where you're personally at today? Or have you come to the second half of that verse where, where there is a free gift of Jesus and this free gift of Jesus has given you eternal life and now it's your responsibility to proclaim that same grace to others because your God saved you when death was deserved. That's what we're about. I'm going to invite the band back up. It's our first weekend here of the month, which means that we get the opportunity to, uh, to celebrate communion but if you haven't said yes to that, to that Romans 6.23, the second half of Romans 6.23, I want to offer you the opportunity to pray with me to make that declaration of faith, to say yes, and then we're going to celebrate that as we receive communion. If you did not receive communion elements when you came in, you can raise your hand. We'll make sure that we have an usher come through and get some communion elements, keep them nice and high. But the entire reason that we celebrate communion, and, and stay with me, I know it's distracting as people walk around. The entire reason that we celebrate communion is we are recognizing that somebody else, Jesus Christ, died on a cross for us. That's how we were extended grace. That's how we were given grace in the first place. That a God 
who's way bigger and way smarter and sees further into the future and further into the past, it's beyond time, in his infinite wisdom, said, hey, this is my creation. I love this creation, but I hate sin and I know they're going to mess it up. What is one, what is a way that I could get them reconciled to me? And the way that he decided to do it was to send his son to die on a cross for every single one of our sins. He offered grace when we deserve death. And the grace was the death of his son. So church, we're gonna proclaim that. If you have not yet said yes to that, I would offer you the opportunity to do it now as we receive communion. Why don't you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, and today as we, we hark back, hearken back to the, the upper room, God, where you, 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 your son and his disciples just, man, they had a meal together. And they didn't understand the significance of the meal at the time. And God, sometimes we forget the significance of the meal as well. But God, this meal today that we are going to partake in, this communion, this is for us to remember that you are a God who offered grace when death was deserved. God, thank you for grace. And Father, if there's people in here today who have not yet said yes to you, who have not received that free gift of grace that you've offered, you're feeling that little tickle right on the inside of your chest, saying, man, I, man I, I have been living for myself. I've been seeking to stage, change the status quo on my own. I've been running from God. And I know this is not what he would have for me. If that's you today, I would just invite you, whether it's for your first time or your thousandth time, I would just invite you to, to pray the ABCs with me. Just in the quietness of your heart, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. that the wages of my sin is my death. I admit that I'm a sinner. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me. That he took my death upon himself. And I believe that he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the ground. He didn't stay in the tomb. God, but that, that stone got rolled away and he, he declared victory over death. I believe that. And see, most importantly, I choose to follow him every single day that my life would be a representation of him, that I would offer grace and truth to those people who don't yet know him. God, that I would live in the second half of Romans 6, 23. The free gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.